0: Naomi Gonzalez always seemed like one of those kids who was on track to do great things. She wanted to make a name for herself.
1: Since she was like three, four years old, she was already like, know what she wants. She wanted to go to college and she wanted
0: to, you know, build a career. That's Naomi's mother, Beatriz Gonzalez. She goes by Betty.
1: So I don't know. I always tell her that she was an old lady, trapped in a in a little body. <laughs> Very organized, super organized. And she always wanted to tell people what to do and
0: not to do. Very bossy, (laughs) like the mom. This is Jose Hernandez, Betty's husband and Mimi's stepfather. He's eager to talk about Mimi too.
2: She always wanted to do things perfect. She never, whatever she started,
0: she'll finish. If she started painting a wall, she won't leave until it was done. Yeah. You never left things halfway. Mimi enrolled at Cal State Long Beach. She started working on a degree in industrial design. And then she got it in her head that she wanted to study in Paris. The, the design school in Paris, it was her dream. That was back in 2015. So Mimi saved her money and finally went.
1: It was only a semester. She was supposed to be there only like for...
0: Six months. Six months. But it was the wrong six months. It was the six months that included
1: this. Good
0: evening, we start with the breaking news out of Paris and what at least at this moment looks to be a
3: city under terror attack on several fronts.
0: Who knows how many people have been injured in uh, explosions, gunfire. Betty wanted to call her daughter just to make sure she was okay, except there was one problem.
2: She couldn't get a hold of her because she have lost
0: her phone. Or she, right? She lost it. Yeah, she lost it. Naomi's boyfriend got the news on Facebook. Her friends in Paris had messaged him. The details were heartbreakingly simple. Naomi was at a restaurant, it had been attacked, and she died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Betty and Jose run a barbershop in L.A., 20 chairs, men and women's haircuts. And Naomi's boyfriend just suddenly appeared at the shop to tell Betty the news. Naomi had died in the attacks.
2: And I'm like, I wasn't expecting him to say it that way, But he just great at her just straight out and 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 the mom was there too and and that was it. I, I didn't know what to say. The only thing that she said that she wasn't that wasn't true. She was just not true, I know Mimi. And then she she fell on the floor and I tried to hold her and she was screaming and I didn't know what to say or what to do.
0: So that's the first unlikely thing about Naomi Gonzalez. She ended up being the only American killed by ISIS fighters when they attacked Paris. And the second unlikely thing is this. She's now at the center of a Supreme Court case, Gonzalez versus Google. And it involves a lawsuit seeking damages under the Anti-Terrorism Act. It argues that Google, which owns YouTube, helped ISIS recruit by recommending the group's videos with its algorithms. What the court may now decide is whether these social media companies like YouTube should be liable for that. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today. Inside one of this year's highest-stakes Supreme Court cases, for the first time, the high court has agreed to consider a circa 1990s law that has been shielding social media platforms from lawsuits. And what they decide could change the fate of the internet as we know it. Stay with us.
2: If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to record.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox.
3: Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she? And will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: Not long ago, it might have seemed crazy to suggest that YouTube might share responsibility for radicalizing terrorists who killed an American in Paris. Proving that will be Bob Tolshin's job.
2: I'm an attorney here in Brooklyn, New York. Among other areas of practice, I've done a lot of work representing victims of terrorism.
0: He's one of the lawyers in the Gonzalez case. And he says the high court agreed to consider something that we all now kind of know to be true. That social media has an uncanny ability to motivate people. The argument in Gonzalez is that by leaving ISIS videos up on its platform and using algorithms to recommend them to a wide array of impressionable viewers, Google and YouTube bear some responsibility for the violence that followed.
2: It creates communities. So if if you like beheading videos, you're going to be shunted to preachers who talk about beheading and it, it links people who never would have met, and then it
0: glorifies the activities. It teaches you how to do, teaches you how to build a bomb. He's made this kind of argument before. Back in 2010, he represented victims of terrorism in Israel.
2: You know, this case flows out of that work.
0: The then Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, called it the Facebook Antifada because they were tracking terrorists who were inspired by things they saw on social media.
2: And then they were tracing that to actual attacks.
0: Then in 2014, ISIS roared on the scene. It took over a huge swath of Iraq, declared the caliphate, and then began using social media to invite people to move there and become part of it.
3: They were the hurabas, the few of the few,
2: from all corners of the world, who answered the call of the Prophet. People can make a slick video that actually kind of makes them look good if you're disposed to their way of thinking. And they can send that out to the whole world and reach millions of people in a few seconds. That was such a powerful tool for
0: ISIS. He takes that a step further. He says that YouTube's recommendation algorithms aggressively pushed it toward people who might otherwise have had just a passing interest.
2: Try this. Pick something really weird, like, you know, eggplant horticulture. And... Start looking up videos about growing eggplants and planting eggplants and cooking eggplants and fertilizing eggplants.
0: It isn't a thought experiment. If you do actually do that, YouTube will start helpfully sending you a stream of eggplant videos. Facebook will start introducing you to other eggplant lovers.
2: YouTube's business is selling advertisements, and they trick you into watching the advertisements by keeping you zombie-like in front of your monitor. So they entice you by saying, you liked this eggplant video, here's some eggplant sauce, here's how to make baba ghanoush.
0: Before you know it, you're part of a whole community, utterly obsessed with eggplant. I actually know someone who became utterly obsessed with the ISIS videos he found on social media. He was a Somali American living in Minneapolis. His name is Abdullahi Yusuf. And I interviewed him back in 2016 when he was just a teenager. And he said ISIS's YouTube videos were incredibly effective.
4: You were you were led astray, but now you're like on the right path again, you know. We're we're glad you found this video.
0: I spoke to him shortly before a judge put him under a gag order, which barred him from speaking to the media. But what he said back then is still very relevant to what's at stake in Gonzales.
4: You know, it's like the message is for you. Get up off your butt. And if you don't like it, go do something about it. And, you know, it's just check, 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 check. That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And, you know, sign me up.
0: Those videos he watched helped move Abdullahi to action. He got a passport, bought a plane ticket, and was going to fly to Syria to join the group.
4: To us, ISIS was completely different at the time. They were pretty much going off the Assad regime, you know.
0: This was in the earliest days of ISIS, when it seemed like ISIS had come together to fight the Assad regime in Syria. This was before the beheadings, before the burning of soldiers alive, long before the Paris attacks.
4: We're the ones being oppressed, you know, come help us, you know. We're the ones doing something noble. And I didn't see it as against, like, U.S. foreign policy or anything.
0: And for Abdullahi, the ISIS message in 2014 resonated with him. It gave him a sense of self.
4: I'm confused about who I am. You know,
0: am I American? Am I small? Am I Muslim? Or whatever, right? His friends introduced him to the ISIS YouTube channel, and he said YouTube kept offering him more and more ISIS videos to watch.
4: The action, I guess, the sense of adventure. Instagram was another big thing, you know. The fighters there would post, like, pictures with them, them having nice villas and nice cars and stuff like that. That was enticing, you know.
0: And they had wives, too. Yeah, they was had wives. Is that enticing?
4: I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was 17 at the time. But.
0: All of this is not to relitigate Abdullahi's case, but rather to illustrate just how skillful ISIS was at using social media to find people like Abdullahi and keep them on the channels.
2: Really what enabled ISIS to grow to the proportions that did the availability of these international, world-class communications platforms.
0: That's Bob Tolchin again.
2: That's what YouTube is, that's what Google is, that's what Twitter is, that's what Facebook is. It's a communications platform that you couldn't build if you had a billion dollars.
0: So the question the justices will need to answer is whether when social media company algorithms amplify content, does it somehow become their content? And are they responsible for that? Stay with us.
3: Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Gonzalez versus Google comes down to 26 words written in 1995, before the internet was really a thing. Those 26 words make up something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act.
3: I spent a lot of time making sure that I knew the 26 words.
0: That's Jeff Kossif. He's a cybersecurity law professor at the United States Naval Academy.
3: I actually have testified twice in Congress about Section 230, and both times I had this irrational fear, maybe not totally irrational, but I was really worried that a member was going to ask me what the 26 words were, and I was just going to blank out right, right there, and then it would be a meme.
0: It would have been a meme because he wrote the book about Section 230, a book called the 26 words that created the Internet. What tune would we put them to?
3: Uh, Probably to the (laughs) dial-up sound. I think that would probably be the most appropriate.
0: And those 26 words are...
3: No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider.
0: Those words have been interpreted as saying that platforms can't be sued for things that their users post. And it grew out of a desire to allow the Internet to develop. Back in 1995, online services like CompuServe and Prodigy were all the rage. In fact, Jeff actually remembers being fascinated by Prodigy.
3: I had a friend whose father worked for a computer company, uh, really, it must have been the very early 90s, Uh, So I was even in middle school, and he showed me Prodigy. The power of Prodigy puts the people in your community of interest at your fingertips. Which I just thought was the coolest thing. It was just mind-blowing that it was like a television, except you could actually interact with everything inside of it.
0: They hosted forums and message boards. And Prodigy did this thing that people didn't talk much about then. It moderated content. And because Prodigy took down things its family friendly users might find offensive, they made themselves open to legal action because they were essentially making editorial decisions, just like a newspaper.
3: You know, newspapers are responsible for everything mm-hmm. in their pages. So if a letter to the editor is printed in a newspaper and it's defamatory, the newspaper is going to be responsible.
0: The thinking was, moderating content turned Prodigy into a publisher, so it was subject to the same laws that govern news organizations. And, since no one wants to get sued, there was a perverse incentive to just leave bad stuff up on a platform. So Section 230 was written to protect these companies who were trying to do the right thing, and to let a thousand flowers bloom risk-free on this new thing called the Internet. Bob Tolchin, the Gonzalez lawyer we talked to before, says given everything that has passed since Section 230 was written, it's time for the High Court to take another look at it. He says 230 wasn't written with beheading videos and radicalization in mind. Tell
2: us what it fairly says and what it doesn't say. I can imagine people on the court thinking that, look, the statute doesn't say everything that's been attributed to it. And if Congress wants to issue some kind of a blanket immunity like that, well, Congress should do it, not interpolation by the courts.
3: I'll speak with anyone who wants to talk to me about Section 230. That's Jeff Kosseth again. And in the past few years, that's been a lot of people on the Hill. And I think that half the people I speak with share concerns about, you know, why are we giving this protection to these platforms when this really awful stuff happens as a result of what some people see online.
0: And the other half of the people he speaks with.
3: Point to specific instances, things like the Hunter Biden laptop story, uh, where they say, you know, the platforms were far too quick to block or downplay material that was harmful to liberal interests and that the platforms have a liberal bias and that they try to suppress the views of conservatives.
0: And why would conservatives give any protection to platforms that have it out for them? That's thought to be Justice Clarence Thomas's position. What happens next comes down to two things, and either way, the stakes are huge. The justices could decide to strike down immunity provisions in some kind of wholesale way, which would mean tech companies could suddenly find themselves open to enormous legal risk unless they change the way they sort through their content. Or, the court could more or less affirm what lower courts have already said, that the use of algorithms doesn't turn social media companies into publishers.
3: And they won't be liable for all of it.
0: Google's attorneys in the case did not respond to repeated requests for comment. Betty Gonzalez and her husband Jose, for their part, aren't thinking much about the court case. They're not going to go to oral arguments. They're still processing Mimi's death.
1: I was in a bubble for many For many months, and I think I'm still in a bubble.
0: Mimi's mother always thought her daughter would make a name for herself. Being defended in a Supreme Court case wasn't what she had in mind.
1: I don't know nothing about law or politics, and I don't want to get involved.
0: But at the same time...
1: I don't want her life to
0: just be, you know, like gone and forgotten, just like that. Mimi had always been so focused on college, so intent on finishing what she'd started. And in the spring of 2016, it finally happened. Betty and Jose went to graduation to accept her diploma.
1: We had a conversation one time, and she said, Mommy, I want you to know that when I get my diploma, when I graduate, it's like both graduating because it's our effort team. At this time, we would like to present her diploma to her mother,
0: Beatriz. And as they walked on stage, Mimi's name was the first to be read.
3: Melanie Gonzalez.
1: So when I walked into through the stage, I remember those words that she told me. And uh, I said to myself, Mimi, here we are.
0: Getting you diploma. There's a lovely picture of Mimi in Paris. She's in the middle of a group shop with some other students studying there too. And they all have that happy, scruffy college look. The one that says they have their whole lives ahead of them. It was taken less than a month before the Paris attacks. Mimi had posted it on Facebook. This is Click Here. Yo, on the mark. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories of the week. Norway's Prime Minister, Janis Garstor, has warned that Russia poses a real and serious threat to the country's oil and gas industry. Storr said the country's counterintelligence and cybersecurity agencies had stepped up their efforts to defend against cyber attacks. The prime minister made his comments after seven Russians were arrested in Norway in connection with drone flights over some of the nation's major energy installations. Storr said Norwegians shouldn't be surprised if there are more arrests like this going forward. He said Russia may be taking great risks as it seeks to gather intelligence. The FBI released an alert last week warning of Iranian hack-and-leak operations targeting organizations in the U.S. and Israel. The alert centers on an Iranian company called Eminet Pasigard. The FBI had previously linked the company to interference in the 2020 presidential elections. And the FBI said the company, which has changed its name several times to avoid sanctions, has targeted entities in Israel since 2020. They typically steal information and then leak it, putting it up on social media and online forums. The group often pretends to be a hacktivist organization to muddy attempts at attribution. And finally, the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, said that over the next year, the agency will focus on beefing up cyber defenses on water, hospitals, and schools. Easterly specifically mentioned a recent ransomware attack on the Los Angeles Unified School District. She called it a case study for cyber incident reporting because the school district reached out to the FBI and CISA for assistance. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors. Darren Ancrum is our fact checker, and Ben Levingston composed our theme. Kendra Hanna is our intern. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and connect with us by email at click here at recordedfuture.com or on our website at com. We'll be back next Tuesday.
2: Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.